Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show takes guests in the barrel, behind the scenes with the people who've been there, done that, and seen the results. Revenue Builders covers best practices for scaling and growing your business while sharing the pitfalls to avoid. Great conversation, solid interviews, tangible takeaways to help you succeed. If you enjoy the content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John Kaplan. I'm here with my good friend, five-time CRO and best-selling author of the book, The Qualified Sales Leader, John McMahon. Johnny, how are you? I'm doing great this morning, Cap. How about you? I'm doing really good, buddy. I'm doing really good. I'm I'm really excited to uh, to introduce our guest to the audience and to you, John. Let's kick it off with today. We've got Greg Fairbank, who's the president and CEO of Saratoga Data Systems, with an extensive background in enterprise software development and sales at high growth technology companies. Prior to Saratoga, Greg developed Indeca Technologies Enterprise Search and Government Practices, which was acquired by Oracle. Prior to that, Greg was a software development manager at Sapient Corporation, and he managed Sapient's first offshore software development effort and delivered online banking and commerce applications to Fortune 500 clients. As a colonel in the United States Army, Greg held battalion and strategic commands, as well as serving on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. During his tenure with the Joint Chiefs, Greg represented his unit to the U.S. Congress and provided briefings to the senior leadership of the Departments of State and Defense. Greg holds degrees from Cornell and Harvard and is a distinguished graduate of the U.S. Army War College. Holy smokes, Johnny McMahon. That's a wee bit more impressive than Boise State and Bowling Green football. Yeah. <laughs> so, or NJIT. So, exactly. Yeah. So, great to so have Greg, you, Greg. Yeah. Welcome, brother. Welcome. Hey, thanks, guys. It's great to be here. Hey, so um, let's dive in. And you've got such an amazing background, Greg, <clears throat> of leadership in the military and in business. Um, let's start with how did you get involved in the military? Yeah, uh, John, you'll appreciate this because um, it deals with uh, it deals with college football. Uh, my my folks, my grandfather had been a naval officer in World War II. My dad had been drafted during Vietnam, but um, military the military wasn't that big in my family. But for some reason, I grew up in upstate New York, and my folks took me down to a West Point football game. I think my like my freshman year of high school, and man, I was just saw the parade, saw the football game, all the pageantry, and I was just hooked. And ironically, it was kind of I got audibled off to, to Cornell because um, sort of interested in, in, in a girl who might have been going out there. Um, but it's it was just <laughs> the, the hook was set. So I was I was I was really into it. And I and and I, I got a ROTC scholarship to Cornell. So I said, hey, listen, I can have the best of both worlds here. I can I can I can get my commission just like West Point uh, and get a great education and a civilian education at that. So it was but this hook was really set at West Point, which was pretty amazing. So you you go into the military and you wind up in military intelligence without telling us anything that Johnny and I have to disappear for. <clears throat> Can you tell us how you kind of how did you get involved in military intelligence? Yeah. So when you when you're a cadet, you 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 go through a branching process, and you you all probably are familiar with some of the branches. So there's infantry yep. and there's field artillery and there's engineers, Corps of Engineers, and obviously the the intelligence intelligence is a branch as well. Um, it's a pretty high demand branch. So you've I, I, I did reasonably well, was selected for intelligence. I've had the ver- the blessing of just really working in pro- intelligence is a really broad spectrum too. There's everything for like you can be working for the NSA, doing what we call sig- signals intelligence um, to human intelligence, um, which is kind of you know your classic people meeting meeting with people actually has a great applicability to business and to technical intelligence. And I've really gotten to do it a little bit of everything, which is quite amazing. But like I said, it, it, the, the, the human intelligence is quite unbelievable because it is a unbelievable analog and the contributions to kind of what you get in the business world is, 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 is really stupendous. 
talk to us a little bit about that. What are some of your big takeaways from human intelligence and the, you know, the takeaways for, you know, selling and, you know, just considering our audience selling and business. Yeah. What are some of your takeaways? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the number one thing that they teach you when you're getting your human intelligence training is rapport. I'm sure for everyone out there, that sounds very familiar to sales because it's building rapport. Um, and in human intelligence, you're really selling a couple of things. You're selling yourself um, as a relationship and someone who can be trusted and someone who people want to help. Um, and also, um, per se, the U.S., United States government. Yeah, hey, I'm, this is the reason why you want to be helping me. But the number one thing, which I'm sure all the listeners will really appreciate is it's all about rapport. Rapport, rapport, rapport. And um, they, they, not to give away too much tradecraft, but they say in those early meetings, which is so applicable to um, sales, you, 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 it's almost an inverse relationship with the amount of time that you spent with somebody. Early on, you want to spend most of it as rapport and get a little bit of content. And as you move along in your relationship with that person, more content, less rapport, you've got that rapport established, et cetera. Um, but they, some of the training you receive there is just unbelievable in terms of how you develop that rapport and how you listen and the questioning. It was some of the best training I've ever had and shouldn't be saying this, but I've used it on my kids a few times. <laughs> <laughs> no and doubt. That's the, that's the extent of what you can tell us about. Yeah, that's probably about it. So, yeah, yeah wow. probably about it. But, but it's, like I say, the training for the sales world and not, you know, think about the things which you learn in your sales training, not asking leading questions, asking open-ended questions and not interjecting on in the conversation, letting silence be a good thing. These are all things which you, they unquestionably teach in that world. And there's direct analogs in the, in, in, in the sales world, because you're doing the same thing. You're trying to get discovery. You're trying to understand what their drivers are. You're trying to understand what information's there to be had. So it, it was great training, really, really great training. How did they handle the nuances, Greg, of going into different regions and different cultures? And so it's, it's you know, it's a lot like our, you know, a lot like our audience, you know, and going into, you know, data center or going into finance or going into, you got to be aware of your surroundings. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, in order to build rapport, you've got to be able to you got to be able to have some credibility. And so how did, how do you balance that? It just yeah. in your mind, just kind of translating yeah. to what, yeah. what you learned in intelligence and then how you brought that into the business world. Yeah. I, you know, I'll give you an anecdote. I, I think the number one thing that they teach because they can't teach the whole worldwide, right. You, working in East Asia is going to be different than working in Africa. They can't teach all those different nuances. When you're going to go to an operational assignment there, they're going to give you that nuance and you're going to have it through your language training, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things they do teach you, kind of the core stuff that they teach, and I'll give you this funny anecdote, is respect. And a perfect example is I went in for one of these training sessions and I think I put my, I put my, materials on the guy's desk where I was supposed to be meeting. It's a mock meeting. Mm. And he just starts screaming at me, like, get your stuff off my desk, yada, yada, yada. He's just having at me. And he, at the end, they kind of debriefing. He's like, don't make assumptions. Don't make assumptions of what's okay with, in this case, the, 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 the source or the individual who you're trying to meet. And I think the direct same direct thing applies in the business world. Like, don't make those assumptions. Be, be courteous. Be that's all part of rapport building, show respect. And, and you do that and you're going to get more of it back. Um, but it was great because they could yell at you and they could do all sorts of things to you. And um, a lot more than they, we do in the business world of training. So sounds like the training with John McMahon, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so It was great. It was great training. Great, great. great training. And teach you to try to uncover like the different social styles of the people, like whether like so that you knew how to communicate with them. Are they more analytical? Are they more expressive? Are they more amiable? Are they drivers? Did, did they teach? Was that part of the training also? For sure. Yeah, for sure. You want to find out what what the individual's drivers are. And then obviously there's 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 all sorts of layers on there which aren't necessarily applicable to to the business world because like hey listen are they being truthful I don't think we ever face that really in the business world right I mean sometimes I guess in a minor sense but are they being truthful are they being deceitful are they actually are they a counterintelligence agent right are they feeding you bad information right. so there's layers beyond business there that happen um, but the core stuff is the absolute same it's like okay am I able to converse with this person am I able to 
establish that rapport. And they, they, they even say at the beginning, it's like you're building a rapport sandwich. You're starting with rapport, getting a little bit of content, ending with rapport. And I think the same thing is true um, in the civilian sector, in those early meets, right, that we're doing with folks. You want to, hey, when you're doing sales, you want to just make that person, maybe not necessarily want to talk to you, but like, well, that's the ideal circumstance. Want, but okay to talk with you. Yeah, I'm going to pick up your phone call. I'm going to answer your email. I'm going to, you know, and, and that's, you guys know, that can be really challenging. Um, it can be really, really challenging. So now do you have your, you're the CEO of a technology company now. Do you have any um, experiences where somebody does it right? And it kind of throws you back to your training to say, wow, that was pretty good rapport building. Or uh, do you have anything that kind of sticks out for you? That, I that's do. like the way people approach you? Yeah, John, I, I, I would say that one of my, um, one of my technologists built the rapport, you know, obviously us business guys are sort of the, the, the meatheads, but one of my technologists built that rapport through technological, he, he built a rapport first. He led with technology and then there was a common respect built there, but then they filled it in with the human aspect after that. And it paid such huge dividends. And I think that's an interesting thing. Like, and, and, but the same thing applies in the military. Like, that's an angle of rapport, right? There was a common respect built through a hey, boy, you know what you're you know what you're talking about when we're talking about these server setups and these network conditions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You guys, I know, have experienced this as well. There's technologists; they've got no patience. If you're a good technologist, they've got no patience for someone who doesn't know what they're talking about. I just watched one of my guys just exude confidence, but it was just natural. He yeah. he was doing it just as a function of his. He knew his stuff and he didn't have to do much more than that. And then they filled in the just the interpersonal rapport afterwards. And it was it was tremendous. And it's paying dividend to the states with this with this customer. I love that. We call that at force management. We call that the seller deficit disorder is basically a principle that was developed on the data that says that most people that we're calling on in sales do not believe that we have an understanding of their business and that we listen very well. And so we call that the seller deficit disorder. And what you just said, Greg, that I like is that in your example with that technologist is that they led with competence and they established a rapport through competence and through relevance and an understanding of another person. So it's kind of an outside in competence. And then you earn the right to make it inside out, to make it more about you, to make it more personal. I find that sometimes people get that turned around a little bit and they're like, hey, it's important to build a relationship. And so people, you know, or build rapport, or build a relationship. And so people start with the wrong angle. They try to build the relationship. Hey, how you doing? Is that your kids that I see in the background or whatever? And it just does not come off as authentic because it, you didn't lead with competence. So I think that's a really good highlight that you just brought out there. Fantastic. Now, Greg, do you find that you try to recruit some people that have gone through the same training as you? Have you seek them out or if they yeah. have they come along and then you say, okay, I know this person's went through the same training I did. This is going to be a good hire for me. Yeah, great question, John. The, the intersection of that world, and it's definitely there, there's whole programs of like, technology and high tech. Listen, obviously, the U.S. military, the U.S. In intelligence community definitely works on these subjects, right? It's a vital national interest to us that, but it's a, unfortunately, it's a smaller skills. It's a smaller, if you're doing the Venn diagram of good humaners and then good technologists, mm -hmm. the overlap is a little bit. It's not, it's not a lot. Um, it. So it's challenging. It's challenging. I would say both in the military world, I know that for sure, um, getting those folks to work there. The government has a real challenge of getting the best technologists to work there. Some people are driven to do it for all sorts of reasons. Um, definitely you face unique problem sets and unique engineering challenges that you don't face anywhere else in the world. And there's patriotism and all that. But a lot of people are like, listen, I want to go out and make my fortune in the civilian sector. And similarly in the civilian sector, getting those folks who've got that background from the military who also can speak the tech, it's a small population. So mm -hmm. it's when you find one, one, it's a gem, but they're not a lot. 
But if you took some people that were military veterans and you took them and put them into SDR training and then into, you know, so they could grow up and learn about your company, handling objections, making phone calls, all the fundamentals of sales. Do you think that those would be great candidates? Yeah, we've done that. I did that, you know, John Kaplan, thanks for running through my background. We did, there was a program that did that exactly at Sapient. Um, and in DECA, we, we did that. I think there was a recognition that there was some real value in these people and we could train them. Um, Sapien had a whole program. I think they're now owned by publicists or whatever. They've been acquired a couple of yeah. times, but there was a recognition that there was real value and that you could take advantage of this. Listen, when we, when we make a military officer, a non-commissioned officer, we spend, we as a government spend millions of dollars training this person. Right. Not all of it's relevant to the business world, but a lot of it is. Um, and if you can find the goodies um, you are building on, it's just like, hey, listen, you're back in the day, you're getting someone from IBM or you're getting someone from this premier company that they've they've invested a lot of a lot in this individual. Not all are appropriate. Not all have that, even the desire to work in the technology sector or right. in the other aspects of sales. But when you find one that does, boy, they can really hit a home run for you. Yeah. Let's stay on that for just a second, Johnny and Greg, because one of the things that's near and dear to John McMahon heart and my heart is um, doing everything we can for military vets. There's great programs out there. There's great recruiters out there that, um, you know, do a good job of kind of helping um, uh, vets transition to the business community. Um, Talk a little bit about, you know, if you could, like, here's some of the things that I've seen, like the discipline and the courage and the uh, preparation, um, these are kind of things that I find from folks from the, the veteran community that are off the charts, like they're really, really high demand. And then there's this little nuance, Greg, and I wonder if you could comment on it, that, that we call commander's intent. And it's like there, there are people that we meet that have the ability to take commander's intent. A lot of it has has to do with where you come and what branches from the military and how much commander's intent you're actually allowed to use and interpret. Um, But they have the ability to take something that the commander says and then take and go and do. And then other people that haven't had that type of environment, they have to keep coming back to you and saying, okay, you said to do this. I went and did this. Now I'm coming back to get my orders to do that. And I don't want to demean anybody. This is a real serious question. What are some of the best ways when we're interviewing and we can kind of find out how to best place some of these veterans based upon their background? Does that make sense to you? It makes total sense. And actually, I want to dial it back just a little bit before we dial, dive into this. Yeah. You know, if, we, if, you, if you guys have been following the war in Ukraine and how the Russians are fighting. Yes. Biggest challenge that they're facing if you, is what you just described, John, is that the Russian officers and they don't have a really good non-commissioned officer corps, is they don't they don't follow this concept of commander's intent, and that is a core tenet, John, of what the U.S. military does. Is say, listen, I'm going to give you my intent. Now you go off and run. Yeah, you go off and make it happen. Um, and the Russians don't really have that, so they stall. That's why all these nominally these generals have been killed. If you followed it. A ton of generals have been killed in Ukraine because they have to be up telling people explicitly, this is what you need to be doing, and it makes them vulnerable. But you you hit the nail on the head, John, in terms of now bringing it back to hiring and everything else. It is core to our good non-commissioned officers and our officers that, listen, I'm not going to give you every little detail on how things are going to happen. I'm going to give you my intent, and you figure out how it's going to happen. And it works really, really, really well. U.S. troops are unbelievably, unbelievably creative, unbelievably uh, inventive in how they tackle things and, and just, and just, hey, listen, I'm going to get it done. There's, a, you know, there's also the concept of just mission accomplishment. I don't yeah, care what yeah. it takes. I'm going to get it done. Um, and you see that time and time again. And coupled with commander's intent <clears throat> or the boss's intent, if you translate that to the sales leader's intent, um, if you translate that to the commercial world, that mission, that desire for mission accomplishment plus intent equals really positive results because they're going to get it done. They might not get it done in the way you expect them to do it, but they're going to get it done. Hey, Greg, if I were going to programmatically try to recruit potential candidates from, you know, from veterans, 
into SDR programs or sales. Tell the audience where you might look first and second to do that. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously there's all sorts of veterans, jobs, fairs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think you get a lot of motivated people going into like business school or kind of grad school day, because you're probably going to be getting folks who are transitioning out of the military, but right at that sort of sweet spot of they've done their kind of initial hitch, certainly as an officer, they've done their initial hitches of five years or so, maybe you've done grad school. Um, this was sort of the route that I took, um, did grad school, and they're kind of really fired up to go out and make things happen in the, in the civilian sector. And when I went to INDEC, it was really interesting. I, <laughs> I was interviewing with a guy, which you guys, I think, you know, Chris Reisig, and he was really, really interested in hiring me. He's like, you don't have any sales experience, but he passed me along to another guy, you know, Jim Baum. Like, listen, I got to take a flyer on this guy. I didn't really, as you guys mentioned in my background, I didn't have the sales experience from Sapien. I, I worked a little, I got off active duty, worked a little bit in the commercial sector, but didn't have sales experience. But Jim took a flyer on me. He's like, listen, you're worth taking a flyer. We can teach you the stuff, which you guys were just talking about. And that's, right. that would be my encouragement to all of your listeners. It's like, listen, take a flyer work with your management to say that what Jim had to do was basically say, listen, you're not going to carry a bag. You're not going to carry a quota. Cause that's what Chris was worried about with me. Was I just going to be dead weight? while I learn learn the ropes, work with them to kind of like, Hey, listen, you got to take a risk here, a little bit of a risk here with these folks. And they're quick learners. Listen, I, I was there for a few years. I, I learned the ropes pretty quickly. And I think it was pretty impactful. Not that long after being hired, after being hired, I made some dumb mistakes, but, that's also part of it, right? You, you've got to be patient with folks. Right. Intelligence, so, intelligence cures a lot of ills, Johnny Mac. Yeah. <laughs> so, Greg, speaking about you, you came out of business school. I think you went to Cornell, right? Yep. And then you come out of business school, and then what did you do? You went to Sapien first. No, I sorry, went to Cornell, and then uh, and then was on active duty. Then went to Sapien, then Harvard Business School, and then Harvard Business School. You Harvard got your MBA, and then that's when you went to Indeca. Yeah, but it got it was interesting. It got extended for a little bit. My second year was right. 9-11 happened at the beginning of my second year. I think we all remember here. 9-11 was a beautiful Tuesday. Yeah. Not a cloud in the sky. Uh, and I got my first call on Thursday. So if 9-11 was Tuesday, I got a call on Thursday saying, get ready, you're going. So um, it was I ended up took like four or five years to visit, finish business school versus the, the normal two just because of a little military vacation. Right. And then when you went to Indeca, what were you doing then? At that yeah, time? it was it was it was building these markets both from a uh, and, and ironically with your your colleague Grant, he came in. We were building the materials to service these market spaces, um, but then also ex- going on sales calls. And that was just the best experience ever. And Indeca wasn't a tiny company at that point, but it wasn't big. So you know, you went out, we, we needed all hands on deck and you went out. And um, so not only building the materials, I was generally never, generally never alone on a sales call, but I would come in for these key meetings where they needed kind of expertise. I could do the translation between, I understood the technology, I understand, I understood the business, the, 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 the commercial or the government's business problem. Um, and then certainly put it so all did together. you start calling on, on the government? For Indeca, yeah. is that what we you did? did? So, what, which uh, did you call on the entire government or DOD, DOE? Yeah, so Indeca had a deal at that point with um, with a with an entity called Incutel, still around. At that point, it was the I can probably still repeat the, or still recount this verbatim. It was the not for profit venture arm of the Central Intelligence Agency. Mm. So the government was trying a new methodology. They wanted to interject new technology. You know, the government gets serviced by a lot of the same big businesses a lot. And they wanted to interject new technology. And they tried this whole thing. They wanted to be like essentially VC-ish and invest in these things. And early on, they did that. They made an investment in, in Indeca. Um, and so we actually then worked on, we ended up selling them the biggest deal that Indeca had ever done at that point. And it was it was fascinating because it went from hypothetical stuff where um, to really being brass tacks on a, on a really important problem set, ironically, in the um, in the human intelligence world. Um, and then what's really the biggest good. learnings you could share with our audience as far as calling on the U.S. government? Yeah, that's a great question. And selling, think, trying to sell to them, which is really difficult for a lot of people that came out is. of the commercial sector. It, then all of a sudden, 
I get put in the uh, government sector and it's, it's a different type of sales call. It's a different type of way in which you. It is John. It is. It, um, the number one thing, I think it's a balance. You need to be patient because the sales cycles are a lot longer than the commercial sector, but they can have a huge payoff. Mm -hmm. And let's just make sure we touch on that in a second. But so patience, but, and if you're hiring a federal team or a government team, you still need to hold their feet to the fire. They can't tell you it's completely different. Yeah. You have to hold their feet to the fire and say, okay, I understand it's going to take longer, but how long is this, it's going to take? And what are your key milestones? And let's lay those out. Um, I think too many commercial businesses say, okay, it's so different. It's so remotely different that we don't apply the same rigor and technique. No, that's a bunch of baloney. Right. Um, you can still understand their decision process and walk yeah. through the who, the what, and the when. Yep. All the way until they say, you know, we, we're going to do business. Let's stay there for a second, guys, though, because this sure. is this is important. I think so many companies do this so poorly. And I watched it after 9-11 and all the government money that went into defense spending and all the technology companies. And I just saw people just do it so badly because, yeah. like, talk about, you know, rapport or relevance yeah. and being like, you got to, it's a different language. Yeah. It's contract vehicles. It is integrators. So what, what advice would you give to our listeners that are like, in your opinion, what does great look like for a company calling on the government or, and normally it's a company that's got a, you know, that's got a, um, a commercial group and then it's got a public sector group or what have you. And like, what is your advice? What do you look for in high watermark um, or high, you know, high performance for a government team. Yeah. What does that look like? Again, I'll stress, number one, you do have to be a little more patient because the sales cycles are long, but there's all sorts of opportunities that are available in the government that you never get in the commercial sector. And, you know, the, if the business is on the smaller side, there's things called SIBRs, and uh, there was a thing, whole program called the RIF. We, my, my business, won a couple of them. Rapid Innovation Fund Award, you know, three million dollars. It's almost like now these are programs that are funded by the government. What what are they? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So they are they are funds that they're almost like a series and a series investments. Yeah, that the government's going to make. They're just going to give you this money to like, for instance, Cibber. The first round of Cibber. There's three rounds of Cibber. And it's obviously not applicable for your listeners who are at a really large business. But if you're at a small to medium-sized business, you unquestionably should be looking into these things because the government's first thing they're going to do is just ask, pay you to write a proposal. If you're if you are accepted for a SIBR, they're going to pay you to write a proposal. And then you move on to phase two. So that, that could be several hundred thousand dollars just to get paid to write a proposal. And then you move on and you move into millions of dollars. And basically pay to do experimentation. It's a paid sales process. It's unbelievable. And this is all part of our government strategy, one, to get in new, good, innovative technologies and to fund small and medium businesses. This is They want to do this. The government has set-asides for these small and medium businesses. That being said, if you're a large business and you have a good technology, you might not be able to apply to those, but there's different sorts of programs which you want to attack as well. Um, they are incented to find new technologies. They really, really are. Um, and you need to find those doers. It's the analogs for commercial sector and, and government sector. People think they're so different. They, they are and they aren't. You need to find those doers. You need to find Here's those Here's part of the problem that I saw, Greg, like back in the mid 2000s, I saw people like, okay, tell me about your, you know, we're going through looking at their segments. Okay, tell me about your government business. Cause everybody, you know, people were, some of the business were getting, you know, great, you know, awards through, uh, through the government, but I'd say, okay, like, how do you approach the government? They're like, well, you know, we just go, we call on a general or we're, and I'm like, uh oh, and they're like, oh, we, uh, we call on this government agency. And I'm like, that agency doesn't let you call on them. They created this contract vehicle. And yeah. so like, does that, first of all, does that still exist? That was a while ago while I was looking at that, but does that still exist? And can you teach people how to do that? Do you go and find other people when you're building a government practice that have built the government practice somewhere else? Like, what's your advice on that? Because yeah. there are a lot of nuances. There are. And I think it's helpful to maybe 
if you have the resources to hire someone who has some experience there. Yeah. But there's a lot of folks down in the DC area who would tell you that they've done a lot more things than they've actually done. <laughs> you call them the charlatans, right? <laughs> and that's not only in DC, by the way. Yeah. yeah. But but it's it's particularly um, pronounced in 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 the Beltway because there is this translation problem. They know how to speak the language. They know all this behind the curtain stuff, and you don't. If you're a commercial sales leader, if you're a commercial leader of a business, you don't understand that stuff. You don't understand SIBRs. You don't understand GSA schedules, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you're exactly right, John. Like calling on a general, bad idea. I can tell you, just like, very rarely is that a good idea because they're not a decision maker. They're they're they might be an operational decision maker, but they're not a they're they're not a they're not going to they're not a technology. Um, implementer. They're not a, um, they're not going to be making that technical business decision to go forward with one technology or another. You need to find those, those individuals and the ones that are motivated to get things done too. So in that sense, it's not too different than the commercial sector, because we know that those, those finding the key decision makers key, is just a little more nuanced in the, in the, in the government, because you've got this other layer of in the military, they may have, they may be wearing a uniform, and just because someone's wearing rank doesn't, and a lot of times, if you get too much rank, you're, like I said, you're not making those decisions. But Qualification, I found, Greg, is like huge. huge. And where, like I found some companies that do it really well, they have an internal qualification process, because here's the dilemma. They had people that were calling on integrators, and I was involved in this one company one time, and they were telling me, okay, we're going to go with this integrator. But there are five integrators that are yeah. trying to sign. They want their technology to put it on a bid to the government. Yeah. And they were kind of treating them like, you know, at Thanksgiving, you're either at the adult table or you're at the kids table. Yeah. And so and these people, yeah. you with me? And they're like, they're like at the kids table. And I would ask questions like, how do you know that integrator is going to win? Yeah. And, 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 the, and the, the, the group was looking at me and they're going like, well, you know, it's North of Grumman or whatever. I'm like, yeah, but there are five integrators that we all have relationships with that are bidding for that business. And so I did see one company do a, a tremendous job. They had an internal qualification process and they became so powerful with the integrators that they were like telling the integrators, okay, if you want us, you got to prove to us that you're the, you're the horse that's going to win the race. Totally changed the dynamic versus the rest of the people in the industry that were trying to just sign up with every integrator. Does that resonate for you? It completely resonates. And I think that you, a lot of businesses think they don't have the power of the integrators when, in fact, if you do have a differentiated technology, you do. Yeah. Um, and and you, you, you know, don't let one company, the first one you talk to, lock you up and put you in an exclusive relationship. Because if you, you you probably have more power than you actually believe and say, hey, listen, yes, let's continue to talk. But no, I'm not signing that uh, exclusive paperwork. No way. No way. What are you going to do for me? So, yeah, it's Northrop Grumman. Well, guess what? There's Boeing and there's all these other integrators out there as well that are might, you know, they're going to have their unique things, too. So but this is where, you know, getting back to your point, John, like. If you don't know all this, finding kind of one of the right people who understands that the landscape is can be pay huge dividends. But at the same time, you really, you know, if I were interviewing them, be like, okay, tell me exactly what you did in the past to be successful. Good. Good. Stay on that for a second, because there are like what I see a lot of companies do, they'll go, well, we'll just go out and get a John McMahon type or whatever. It's got this great reputation. I'm not going to make this analogous to John because it's a bad analogy, but some big name and, you know, that has a you know, there's a, a lot of times I see as like former military people, like former general or former somebody in a high ranking position. And he has just for our listeners. Clearance. And he has a security yeah. clearance. So security like clearances. Yeah. yeah. Throwing that around. Yep. I yeah. What are some of the bare minimums? And I'm sorry I cut you off, but I really wanted people no. to hear this, like take notes on this. Is like if you're going to engage somebody as a third party or bring them on. And you're going to utilize them to get you influence into uh, into your government business. What are some of the bare minimum things that you would look at for like criteria of qualification? I, I think it's not too different than what, you know, if we're hiring someone for to be a commercial rep, please tell me what you've done before. Tell me successful sales engagements that you've run before. Walk me through that. Yeah. Walk me through, you know. Don't be all right. Here's here's our product. We're we're 
we're SMB or we're even a larger business, okay, but we're trying to attack this market space, where would you go? Where would you, you know, give me your top three accounts in the government and then how would you attack them? To be honest with you guys, and this is the, the generals are not going to like me for this, but I would, I would generally stay away from a lot of, unless you're a really big business, I would stay away from hiring someone with a lot of brass who's just selling, hey, listen, I'm major general so-and-so recently retired. Okay. That means you've probably never done, you've never done sales mm. at all. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you might have a lot of connections and maybe you're really good. Maybe there are good ones out there. Don't get me wrong. But I would rather hire, they're going to be expensive. And I'd rather hire a few younger, young guns who have had demonstrable sales experience or just are really motivated than hire someone. Because remember, if you're hiring a former general or something like that, they're getting a pension. They're kind of, some of them are hungry, but a lot of them aren't. And they're just pitching themselves as influencers who they may or may not be. But they're yeah. earning, they're, they're, they've got their pension, which they're earning. And so at a minimum, they're taken care of. They're not as hungry as someone who is maybe younger, maybe, maybe they've been successful. Maybe they, maybe this is their first go around. And I think like it's sometimes you got to take flyers on people. You find someone you see who's really, really competent, really, really, it's, it's worthwhile to take flyers on people. That's what, that's what Jim and Chris did with me. And I think it worked out all right for them. Yeah. So, Greg, you've spent, you know, most of your life experiences leading you to the role of, you know, CEO at Saratoga. Can you tell tell us a little bit about what Saratoga does? Yeah. So um, uh, founded by a bunch of guys who came out of the semiconductor design space, have two tools, one um, that plays in that space exclusively. Um, name it, It's Bantam. It does stuff with computer chip design files. But then the other one, which I was really attracted to, was a, a product called Flume which moves data over challenge connections. So when I say challenge connections, I mean internet, internet connections that have high latency, higher emittency, high corruption, high congestion. Mm-hmm. Um, and those can be naturally occurring, but those could also be man-made in, in the government space. So I actually took us, we're kind of heading down the path of working with financial services and working um, in some of the information space and the commercial sector. But I said, guys, there's nobody has these challenges like the government, right. nobody, specifically the military. And so we've been involved with the Air Force and Special Operations Command because nobody, I would say in most cases, your, your listeners need to know that most cases, the government is a follower in terms of technology. But yeah. there are some spaces where the government is a leader. And it's where they're trying to do things where nobody, I mean, nobody tries to move data over Iridium. If, if you guys remember that whole company, sure, the Iridium sure. satellite system, nobody tries to move data over the Iridium satellite system like the government. Nobody mm-hmm. tries to move data over radio networks in austere conditions like the government. Nobody tries to move data in deliberately what we would call in the military denied environments, meaning like people are literally trying to stop your signal from getting through. Yeah. Um, another term for that, you guys, your listeners may have heard of is electronic warfare. That's what that means. Like I'm going to at root, just blast a signal larger than your signal to stop you from getting through. And so Flume can actually power through that. We won't get into the technology, but it's really, really neat. And it's a place where they are a leader. The government is a leader. So I think finding those spaces where the government wants to be a leader um, is really interesting. That's what Indeco was, and that's what Saratoga Data Systems doing. And it's been, you can find at that point, tying it back all in, John Kaplan, when you're, they're, they're finding these cutting edge technologies, they will then give you the money for these almost like A series, B series rounds to, yeah. to fund this. Sivers and the RIF program is suspended right now, but there's all sorts of there's all sorts of offices. I mean, InQtel was one. I've worked with another one called Da Vinci in the Rapid Technology Fielding Office in the for Secretary of Defense. There's 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 a myriad of these things because they realize they need to get new innovative technologies in to solve very unique problems that the commercial sector may not have they'll get to, but they may not have t- tackled yet. Yeah, I got to imagine like every nation state is trying to hack into that, right, to grab that data that, you know, the government wants to transfer, you know, somewhere else in the world. In fact, I was just listening to the CEO of Checkpoint Systems, and he said the the average company in the U.S. is getting hit 2,000 times a week, a week. And he said, now we stop a lot of those, but, you know, some of those things get through. And so you got to imagine that the U.S. government's getting hit 
a million times a week. So having a technology like yours has to really help. It's it's neat. It's a fun place to spend, fun place to play. The technological challenges are real. I mean, it's 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 you know, last fall we were sending stuff to Africa, and we weren't sending field engineers out there because we couldn't. We're sending stuff with a military customer to an austere location in Africa, and so part of it is you're like, you know, you think of all your sales preparation and due diligence, and you try and set yourself up for success as absolutely as much as possible. But at a certain point, you're like, okay, hands off, literally hands off. And just, <laughs> I hope things go okay. Nice. And it's crazy. I mean, it's, it's for us in that case, we actually, it's such an austere location. We failed in one case, but we found out it wasn't us. It was just so hot that we were burning out drives because it was just, you're not in a data center. And it's challenging because then you need to say, hey, listen, guys, the failure wasn't us, but it's actually, you guys are trying to do something in such a rugged environment that you're actually burning out hardware. Interesting yeah. stuff. You need and Greg, talent. are you hiring? We, we definitely would be hiring the right sort of people. And for us, it would be, you know. So he, that's his way, Johnny, of saying. <laughs> he, <laughs> he said, Kaplan, you're not a candidate, but. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, you it, might, for us, it some would of be, your listeners might be. Yeah, yeah. For, for us, it would be, I mean, we, we, it is really kind of probably some of those sales engineers or some of those folks that um, really understand that. And, and like you said, this ties it back in, John, probably maybe have a clearance um, because that's, and that's where looking into veterans is really huge. They, they're going to be rolling yeah. off active duty or reserve duty with a top secret clearance, and they can mm -hmm. immediately parlay that into your business. You don't need to go through the whole process of clearing them. So it's 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 another reason to look at that space yes. if you're if you're interested in it. Now, Greg, you're also involved heavily involved. I understand in an organization called No One Left Behind, yeah. which is a super important organization from what I've read. But can you give our listeners a quick overview of No One Left Behind, and then Johnny and I can ask you a couple more questions yeah, on it? Yeah, John, thanks for bringing it up. So, um, No One Left Behind was actually set up by one of my soldiers and his interpreter. Um, about 10 years ago now, a guy named Matt Seller and his, his interpreter, Janice Shinwari. Uh, Matt was deployed to Afghanistan and wanted to bring Janice. Janice had literally saved his life in the field. Um, they were in a firefight with the Taliban and Janice literally killed some Taliban members to save Matt. And so he's like, listen, I got to bring this guy back. He's now, they want to kill him because he's, I want to bring him back to the States. And he found it was a terribly challenging problem. And it remains to this day. So no one left behind we're, I think, one of the largest and most respected organizations who are trying to bring over Iraqi and Afghanistan, Afghan interpreters. Um, and the program that the government has for this is called SIVs, Special Immigrant Visas. Repatriate them, get them out of harm's way. And when we left last August, you know, the, the timing of this is just great that we're doing this right now, guys, because we're approaching um, the, the one-year anniversary of our evacuation from Kabul. We left behind, we are tracking, no one left behind, are tracking 69,000 people that we left behind. Wow. Wow. And now, these, from what I understand is already with the program, from what I read, 80,000 Afghans have been granted special immigrant visas and and have emigrated into the US where no one left behind also helps them resettle. Yeah. But one of the biggest problems and maybe this is where you're going is it take 9 months to a year to get an SIV. And that's lucky. If you get in 9 months to a year, it's it's dragged on for years for some of these folks. And I'll leave the politics out of it, but it's just it's 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 embarrassing that we've made these commitments to these folks. We're gonna they worked with us, they made these commitments to work with us. We want to work with them or we want to help them. We need to fulfill these commitments. Um, it's embarrassing and it takes it's taken years for these folks. In the meantime, they're being harassed and injured, and we have documented cases where they've been killed. They're you know, being they're, hunted, they're, right? So a lot yeah, of them have absolutely. to go to Pakistan or go to some other third yeah. third party country, if you call it I, 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 Afghanistan I in order to hide. Yeah, I was sitting down for Thanksgiving dinner last year and up on my phone pops uh, pictures of this guy. And he's like, I got my face smashed in by the Taliban last night. Kind of mm -hmm. ruined your appetite and mm -hmm. photos of him. Like, like, because I've seen a lot of bad stuff, but just, you just feel, we just let this guy down. You know, mm -hmm. we let him down and he's still there. He's still there. He's, he's, he's on the run and we're trying to get him out. And, and no one left behind has been successful. We, we've gotten out 1,700 folks over the course of the past year, since that evacuation stopped in 462, I, I asked the staff to give me these in preparation for this 462 in the past month alone. So we're getting really? these folks out, but it's 
guys, after after last last August, it's expensive and time consuming. Um, our government is not doing this. We're picking up the pieces in their absence. What you're referring to, so when you say last August or whatever, this, so the administration, this isn't a political comment or conversation, but it's just kind of fact. New administration comes in in April. They say we're going to vacate Afghanistan in April. And then, you know, by 9-11 was what I believe was the direct um, was the direct language. And then we all saw the, you know, the, the horror at the Kabul airport with in that a lot of those were probably people that were affiliated, you know, with the United States government. And Greg, one of the things that like I've been really interested in, I, I read a book a, a while ago. It was called The Places in Between. It was written by this guy, this Scottish guy named Rory Stewart. And he talked about, he wanted to go, this is after 9-11, the Scottish guy, and he wanted to walk the same walk that through Afghanistan, that Genghis Khan and some of the great, you know, some of the great historical figures. And the book was fascinating, Greg, because what it introduced to me was, and he was walking through Taliban country and he was walking through, but he didn't, nobody heard him because there's this code and I'm not talking about for Taliban, I'm talking about for local Afghans. There's this code, and it's probably the reason why a number of your people like are, are who they are and why they endangered their families. And I, I just looked it up. I don't know, I don't understand any of it, but it's like push uh, push top. Yep. Yeah, Pashtunwala. Will you explain that to our listeners? Because yeah, yeah, a lot of people think of, oh, you got these informants and you know, to make a little money for the for their families, they're getting paid by the government. That's not why these people are helping the U.S. government. You know, a lot of why they're helping the U.S. government. It's a code of it's a code of life for them. Yeah. Could you talk about that yeah. a little bit? Sure. Uh, so the Pashtuns are one of the largest ethnic group, ethnic groups in Afghanistan. The Pashtun walls are. It is a life or death code. They live it like nobody's business, um, and it's all about honor and it's all about. Um, if someone places their trust in you, it's one of the reasons why they, you know, it was fomented when the Russians invaded Afghanistan and the Mujahideen came in, they worked with the local, there was this, it was partially because, listen, they wanted to stop the attackers, but they also realized that this is, they, they had this duty to, 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 to help these people based on uh, uh, I, I, I don't want to, we could take up this whole <laughs> talk on, on just talking about the nuances of that society, but uh, but certainly there's that at play. And then there's, the, in addition to the Pashtuns, there's a whole bunch of other ethnic groups there, the Hazaras and, and folks and Tajiks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they're all, it's a tremendously complicated area of the world. Yeah, It's a beautiful, beautiful area of the world. Um, but if you think about it, it has been, for the past 40 years, it's been a very, very, well, and they also, you probably also have heard, it's it's the death of empires. Um, yeah. Because it's it's such a challenging part of the world to to operate in. Um, and I and I'm I'm really proud to say I don't think we as you said John we we vacated on our own volition and and we were we were I would dare say at a stalemate with the Taliban and 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 the terrorists there but yeah we 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 left in a hurry and to bring it back to the folks that were, some of these people made these commitments to us and we just feel very very strongly that we need to reciprocate that hey listen they put their life and their freedom and their, and their trust in us. And we need to listen, if we want people to do it in the future, we're going to have to help them out. We, we have to follow through on our commitments. commitments so, to these Greg, we're going to put no one left behind in the show notes so people can reach and maybe even contribute or uh, donate to the cause. Do you, do they have the, does no one left behind have the resources to also lobby to get special immigrant visas, you know, it's, speed, it's, ex, expedited? Yeah, John, it's a great question. It, the um, we that is a function that we do. We are playing in the in the interfacing with Congress and trying to change these laws. They are they are it's it's a difficult process, and it's been made worse by the events in Ukraine. Because listen, we now have the next crisis that we've moved on to, and people's attention. And and God bless the Ukrainians, and it's it's terrible. And so much of the public has just moved on. And, moved on from that problem set to the Afghanistan. Right. That was a long About time to do it again with China and Taiwan, probably. Let's, let's, let's hope not. Yeah, so, let's um, hope but, that'll be brutal. But yeah, so the, 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 the interest of the zeitgeist of the nation has moved on because Afghanistan's long history now. 
But in reality, as I said, there's 69,000 people who made commitments to us who we need to help. We need help. Otherwise, the next Afghanistan rolls around and we ask people, you know, ask people to help. We won't have the same credibility. It's all tying it back to that rapport. Um, that sort of stuff, that sort of stuff goes around. Um, and you need to fulfill your commitments. It's and talk about some of the like ways to get involved. I know it's no one left behind. <clears throat> As Johnny said, we'll put that in the show notes. It'll be attached to the podcast itself. Give us just a flavor here for like, we're talking about basic needs for these people. We're talking about getting them back over here. But then once they get here, they've got to have a support system. They've got to be able to get connected to jobs. They've got to be able to transportation and and could you give us a little flavor for maybe some of the, like a, just a, a viewpoint of what does the money actually do for these people? Because it's yeah. not just getting them out of Afghanistan. Right, right. Yeah, that's the, that's the first part. We actually say our, our, the lifespan of this organization is going to be another 15 years. Because our goal is to get these people here and make them productive members of society. Yeah. So, so, yeah, get them over here. We try and set them up with apartments. We also try and get them vehicles. We were, we're, we're, we're originally were giving cars to these folks so they could get to or from work or use, be an Uber driver, be a Lyft driver, do some of these on-demand delivery functions. They could make a living and not just be uh, reliant on any sort of public handout so they can be you know, beneficial members of society. Um, and so all those things, John, like, hey, listen, we, in, in a few areas around the country, we take household goods and we, we, we've got a warehouse and we set people up in apartments. Uh, but in general, we've got we've got locations all around the U.S. where we're trying to set people up with cars, trying to get them settled, trying to get them working so that um, so that they can just integrate and take part in the American dream, just like all of us or our our and our our ancestors have. Awesome. Well, we appreciate what that organization does, what you and your what you and your uh, partners do for that organization. Again, it's called No One Left Behind. Uh, if you can find it on your heart to uh, donate or to contribute to that, it matters. It makes a huge difference. People that have made commitments to us and uh, we as a culture in the United States have a lot of freedoms and because of a lot of these relationships. And and uh, so if you can find it on your heart to donate to that organization. Johnny Mack, are you ready for a quick summary? Yeah, I want to see how well you you do. Yeah, well, there's so much to there's so much to cover here, and since it was you know a topic about you know uh, intelligence and that kind of stuff, we probably should have had you do it. But um, we're going to uh, we're going to give it the old college try. You know, we started off talking about you know military intelligence and Greg's um, you know background there, <clears throat> and he talked about some of the great corollaries to you know being in the intelligence community and then you know thinking about sales and and business and he talked about the number one kind of thing that he learned in the uh, intelligence community is this building rapport and it's you know not leading questions and about open-ended questions and about respect and uh, and courtesy and all of these kind of natural transitions to what a uh, you know, <clears throat> what would be done in the business or the uh, sales environment for us. But we talked about really narrowing that down to leading with competence and earning the right for rapport, for relationships. You earn the right for the rapport with the competence versus <clears throat> just going in and trying to build relationships with people. Hey, how you doing? Where are you from? How many kids do you got? Whatever. Just, I see a lot of people making that mistake and that are you know, relationship oriented. Then we talked about, you know, military folks and transitioning veterans. <clears throat> we talked about commander's intent is a big thing that we could look for um, and capitalize on with some of these folks that are coming from the military and transitioning into business is something that really is powerful. We use it. I learned that term from Dave Davies, who is a military officer in the army West Point grad at uh, Force Management, Commander's Intent is a very, very powerful uh, concept. And we talked about government sales. We talked about, you know, being patient and this balance between being patient and people telling you that everything's different in the government, like everything's different in different regions of the world. But, you know, having the patience, it's, you know, setting up the right things like, you know, understanding government set-asides. And you talked about this, uh, I think, did you call it SIBR? 
Yeah, Sibbers. Yep. You talked yep. about Sibbers and GSA schedules and and really, you know, understanding what that is. And there's some nuances there. There's some language there that that you have to understand. There's also people that are out there that say that they have these great, you know, relationships and inroads into government business. And Greg's feedback was to us was just qualify like you would qualify in any other uh, interview. It's just like, what have you done specifically? Uh, and what, how have you advanced sales, not just identified relationships, but advanced sales? How would you attack certain situations to try to really understand where they um, were they involved or were they just using a relationship or a name? I know this person, I can introduce you to Greg, but not really helping me understand how to interact with Greg. So we talked a lot about that. We talked a lot about the government nuances, you know, contract vehicles and and um, agencies and, and integrators and, uh, you know, having a really, really good process uh, uh, around that. Then we moved on to uh, No One Left Behind, and what a, uh, a critical organization. Um, we're going to put that into the show notes um, for not only for Afghan folks that helped us, uh, but also uh, Iraqi folks that helped us as well. And I'm sure in the future, you'll be doing it for other regions around the world because it's really, really critical for us. Johnny Mac, it's kind of like you know, sending somebody overseas. I, I remember in business, like I went overseas or what have you, you went overseas. And if you don't treat people on those assignments well, you can't get anybody else to do it. Like when they come back to the United States and there's no job from like 90% of the people, Johnny, in business that, that are expats and they come back, the statistic is 90% of those people, John, don't repatriate with the company that sent them over there. And that's related to kind of what we're talking about here mm. is there's no good ways. People don't think about good ways to bring people back. Right. And um, never heard so, that. I never heard that stat. Amazing. Yeah. So, so we'll put that in the show notes and um, how did I do on the, how did I do on the summary? You did fantastic. So now I get to ask Greg a couple questions. Yeah. yeah. Please. Greg, I think you have a story around the worst mistake you ever made on the job. <laughs> yeah. And it deals with two guys that, you, uh, maybe three that you guys know. So uh, when we were initially sizing the market for doing, I was doing a presentation at Indeca to um, names that you're going to know. Well, I already said some, I think Steve Walski was in the room, Jim Baum and oh, yeah. Reisler. And I think it was Jim who asked me, Hey, what's the size of this market? And I said, and I was young. I, was young. <laughs> I said, it's infinite. I mean, it's, it's infinite. And Jim just <laughs> latched onto that. Like, nobody's business and just what do you mean infinite and just would not let me go. And I, it was a great business lesson because like, don't, don't BS someone when they're asking you, Hey, listen, it was it a really large opportunity. Yes. Qualify it. Right. Uh, I learned that lesson really, really well from Jim Baum. Don't BS in the boardroom. Quantify it. Yeah. 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 That was Harvard going against MIT right there. Wasn't it? Johnny? <laughs> I lost. I lost. <laughs> How about your ideal day off of work? Anything with my kids. I mean, just yeah. listen, I, um, you know, it, between the, between work and then I'm like, you guys noted, I'm still in the reserve. So I'm traveling a bunch for that. So anything with my kids is a good day. Dude, do they get in the car with you? If I'm your kid, I ain't getting in the car with you. <laughs> they, You're riding they, alone they, a lot, aren't you? They've, they've learned to get around my techniques. They, they <laughs> the kids are, kids are crafty. You, you yeah. guys know that. How about your favorite meal? Yeah, it's gone now. It's um, I grew up in upstate New York, and there's great pizza all over New York. Joe's Pizza from Rotterdam, New York. It's it's out of business. It's gone it's like sixty years. Yeah, closed. Yeah, during COVID. Yeah. During COVID. Yeah, before COVID. It's, before it's, COVID. Yeah, I think that's as you realize in life, like things are all great things are uh, temporal, and uh, this one's gone. So and you can't get any good pizza world. down in DC. Uh, I listen. I'm a like I say, I'm a New York guy, and yeah. The closer you are to Buffalo, New York, the best wings you get. The closer you are to New York City, the best pizza you get. There you go. How about your favorite movie? Oh, I'm going to give you a few of them. Last of the Mohicans. Oh, great, great movie. Great. Great. great movie. Hunt for Red October. With yeah. Sean Connery. Great one. Great, great one. Movie. Great um, book, too. That was a great book. The Sting. Oh, the yeah. Sting. Whoa. And then, of course, Caddyshack. I mean, it's <laughs> got to add a little humor in there. I don't think the heavy stuff's going to come down for quite some time now. <laughs> Wouldn't stop the best game of golf in my life. That's right. <laughs> How about best concert? 
You know, I, I, I've seen a whole bunch of them, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my wife credit here. She, she dragged me. Zach Brown was playing at Fenway Park, and I'm not a big fan. Boy, we went to that concert, and I think it's part of, like, just who you're with and everything else. I was with my wife and a couple other friends, and I was blown away by the musical talent they had mm. and just the environment they had. You know, I listen, I've been to a lot of great shows. I saw one of the last Beastie Boys concerts in Boston and I saw all these other great things. <laughs> but but um, but but just going to that concert and it was boy, they actually Zach Brown played a Beastie Boys song. I just remember that. Like it was they were incredibly talented and a lot of fun and, and, and with wife and good friends and yeah. a couple of adult beverages. It was a great day. Great night. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cap, Greg is all yours right now. Hey, Greg, yeah. first of all, I want to say, hey, thanks so much for doing this. You gave our audience so much valuable information. So thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for what you do with the No One Left Behind organization also. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks for, yeah, Greg. Me, thanks for letting me talk about that because it is it is really important. Yeah, brother. I um, I actually, I read about, I didn't know you. I knew your wife. And I read about, I think it was in a Harvard article um, about no one left behind. And then I reached out to your wife and, and, uh, and asked uh, to connect us. And I'm so glad we took the opportunity to do that. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you. Thank you for doing what you do. Uh, not only in for no one left behind, but the technologies that you're working on to help, you know, to help our country just be better all around inside and outside of our borders. And we, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to be here. Thanks a lot. And thank you all for listening to Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.